0: The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now, here's your host, Mary Woods.
2: Welcome to One Hour at a Time, a show hosted by Mary Woods that's designed to help people understand the recovery of adults and families living with co-occurring substance use disorders and psychotic and or effective illness over the course of a lifetime. The show helps individuals develop the skills and knowledge they need to take personal responsibility for their health and supporting individuals in their efforts to get on with life beyond uh, illness. This is Mary's Mission, and One Hour at a Time is broadcast live on Voice of America. On Voice America. Uh, shoot. Okay. This is Mary's Mission, and One Hour at a Time is broadcast live on Voice America every Monday afternoon at 12 p.m. Pacific. My name is John McAndrew, and I am your guest host today. I'm very honored to be here, and we have a very special guest who uh, is an author and a very interesting person, and uh, I'd like to give you a little bit about Mr. Brixton Key, who was born in England in the 1950s, and it says here, To a party-loving scallywag mom and an errant dad, he was expelled from boarding school. He landed a gig with the British Music Weekly Melody Maker, writing under the name of Mark Plummer. He left for America one step ahead of Margaret Thatcher's clampdown to manage Chris Isaac in the 1980s, building the idol and actor's career as MTV started rolling and ruling the airwaves. In the 1990s, Brixton suffered a life-threatening brain aneurysm. After he recovered, on the advice of his stepson, he began writing fiction. Brixton now lives with his girlfriend in downtown San Francisco. In the late night hours, he reads his favorite authors and uh, works on his sequel for his new book, Charlie Six. He's a lifelong insomniac, has little time for sleep, And who would when another story is lurking around every corner? Brixton, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. And uh, it's an honor to be guest hosting with uh, someone who has so much history in the music business, like myself. And uh, in reading about you, I know you're an author. I know you've been through some amazing things in your life, which you're... uh, Your background is long and uh, very, very interesting, and I uh, have read some of your book, and it's a very exciting read, just uh, I can close my eyes and see, I can see a movie being made from Charlie Six, Uh, and I think my first question for you is very interested in what it was like growing up in London in the 50s and 60s, and... uh, where you got all this uh, wonderful information for your new book.
3: It was a... uh, Actually, you know, growing up in the... When I was born, um, well, kind of my first memories, you know, uh, we we lived in central London, uh, which was sort of strange, because at that that period, really, um, no one lived in the center of London. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was it was really downtown. It's not like now where I live in a loft, you know, and I could literally, uh, you know, shout to someone in the window in the office block next door, you know. Um, but it was such a grey country. It was so depressed, um, you know. There was the great the First World War, the Depression, mm-hmm. uh, the Second World War. And the country was just broke,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: I can remember. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Keith Richard writes about this in his book. How sweets would be rationed? I mean, it would it would be so. It was just such a strange kind of gray place. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just everything was sort of gray. Um, and then some somehow all these young people when I was a teenager, or really when I was about 11, I suppose, suddenly discovered American music, or were discovering American music, and started playing it. You know, you had uh-huh. Beatles start the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who. And it, it was amazingly, it was almost as if John Lennon got on the television, opened his mouth to, uh, you know, sing Love Me Do, and mm-hmm. the world
2: went Technicolor. <laughs> wow, <that's laughs> it's incredible.
3: I don't really, you know, it, it sounds so sort of silly to say that, but it, it, it kind of went Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like bad accents, you know, my accent now actually is, is pretty, you know, in the middle. But I, I had a very heavy Cockney accent. And I, I was at boarding school. And I'll tell you, when I first went to boarding school, I had a scholarship. It was really horrible because all the other children had these, you know, nice middle class accents, and and they they, they were so against you because you know I'm talking like this, and they're talking like this. Uh (laughs) It
2: was just a very strange world, and and it was tremendous. When when 1960 came around, how old were you, Brixton? I'm sorry, I I missed the question. Uh, when 1960 came around, how old were you then? I was nine years old. Oh, okay.
3: I'm really, you know, I I was a boarding school. I had such a strange life. I was at a boarding school, which was very, uh, as we would say in England, very posh, great school. I, I kind of hated being there, but I realize now that the uh, education I got was was just tremendous, tremendous education. But um. It was really a couple of years later, uh, I was about 11, uh, when my sister had seen um, Mick Jagger and Keith Richard in Richmond near where we lived, wow. and she had said to her friend, who is that boy? She had just this huge crush on uh, Mick Jagger, <laughs> <laughs> which was very lucky for me because she found out he was singing with a group called the Rolling Stones. And I happened to be uh, home for, um, I don't know why I was home, and I can't remember what time of year it was, but I was home on probably on a holiday or half term, and so my sister took me. Um, and you know, in those days, if you were, in England, if you were tall enough to be able to look over the counter in a bar, they would serve you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> And and you know at eleven I I could look over the counter I was very very tall for uh, an English person at that time, so my sister took me to see the Stones and it was it was just breathtaking. Um, I'd, I'd grown up with really great music. My my elder brother uh, he's what ten years older than me or something. Um, he was a huge fan of American music. And he had a huge record collection. He spent every single penny of his pocket money on records. And uh, if he really needed something, he, he kind of stole a lot of records, too. I mean, he was not, uh-huh. you know, he was a typical teenage kid, right? Right. And uh, he had like, Muddy Waters, uh, Louis Armstrong.
4: Oh, man,
3: Duke wow. Ellington. Um. He even had, oh, my God, this was so amazing. He even had a Robert Johnson record, oh my which, which was just, it was like mm-hmm. worshipping at the altar of music, you know. Mm-hmm. So we saw the Stones. My sister took me, and it was amazing because, you know, I'd heard slide guitar on, on records, but until you really see a person playing kind of in a, in a live situation, um, you don't really get that visceral experience.
2: Right. And how big of a venue did you first see the Stones in? Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. I'm in my
3: friend's uh, loft because I don't have a landline, um, you know, two doors down from my loft. And I would say this is about 700 square feet. Gosh. And that's about the size of the, the room they were in. I mean, they were playing on a stage, to, you know, like a, a, a kitchen table.
2: <laughs> wow. And were you able to see the Beatles in that same sort of uh, venue at that time? Well, a little bit later. Enough,
3: I did see the Beatles. Um, the following week, I I took myself to the show. I actually ran away from school to see them, um, jumped on a train into London without permission. Um, went to see the Stones and that week the Beatles came. It was amazing there were the Beatles you know Mm -hmm. Um, and they were kind of left alone I mean people were pretty impressed the Beatles Mm -hmm. were there but this was I I was probably I mean everyone I would say was 18 you know 18-ish and I'm just this strange little kid there
2: you know. Wow
3: so your world has
2: has gone from the dark and the gray um, After the war, and your head's poking over the counter, and there's the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and you're able to drink. (laughs) (laughs) Your life has changed. Were were you at all uh, interested in picking up a guitar, or were your eyes more open to other things at that point, or did you even know? I, I suppose it was just fun, wasn't it?
3: It was just fun. I I did play guitar and I do play guitar, but I, I'm I'm an absolutely lousy guitar player. <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: I I have to play in an open tuning and it's a little bit hit and miss. You know what I mean? Um, no, I I kind of discovered when I was uh, oh, a little bit older, maybe you know a year, maybe thirteen, something like that. I discovered that if I went to a show and got there, you know, a couple of hours early. Mm-hmm. The band would turn up, and very few groups in those days had uh, had a roadie. So if the, when the band turned up, I would say, excuse me, would you like some help with your gear? Oh, man, <laughs> that's
2: the way to get in, isn't it? And,
3: uh, and of course, you know, no, you can't help with my amplifier. It was like, yeah, sure, thank you, you know. So I, I really kind of, I got in everywhere, and then Good. after you sort of got in everywhere,
2: people just sort of, you're part of, you're part of it. Yeah. So. Um, you well, know, awesome. I'm, my my name is John McAndrew again. I'm co-hosting one hour at a time with Mary Woods, and we're speaking with Brixton Key. And when we come back, we're going to talk about melody maker and chris isaac and and lots of other things so we'll be right back
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
1: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
2: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time, hosted by Mary Woods. My name is John McAndrew, and I'm your guest host today. And we are speaking with Brixton Key, who is an author. And in our first segment, we let you know that he was born in London in the 50s. And he's kind of told us about how London went from gray to color in the 60s. And we're just going to catch up again with him on... uh, We were last talking... Brixton, about you singing the Stones and McCartney and those people in the bars. And you were 11, 12, 13 years old. And what kind of led you into writing about music? And uh, you later got a job writing at Melody Maker, didn't you?
3: I did. Um, I, I, you know, I started reading when I was really very young. I think I was maybe three years old when I started to read. At least oh. that's what my mom always said, and she's, she she actually used to tell this funny story. Where one day she was reading me, um, you know, a little book, and uh, um, she, I guess she had read it to me so many times. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and she was kind of reading it by memory almost you know what I mean mm-hmm. and she said dog and I looked at the page and I said mum that's cat C-A-T <laughs> and my mum my said uh, I think you can read she told my dad so my dad went and bought a, a little book for me that um, I'd never seen and they gave it to me and were astonished when I read it to them <laughs> And I I started writing about that time. I wrote a little play. I made my sister... My brother had left then to join the Army. But I wrote a little play, and I made my sister play a part, and I made my mum play a part. And um, we had a bar at the time. And um, my my dad thought it was so cute that uh, in the evening... We didn't get many customers in the bar in the evening because, as, as I say, we lived in central London. So um, one evening, there were a lot just sort of friends there, and my dad made me put on this little play.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. And it was
3: so exciting because people clapped and stuff.
2: Well, <laughs> so sure I started bit.
3: writing little stories, you know.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, I just always liked writing. I always love reading. I always love writing. I think also when uh, my parents started to, uh, when they were starting to break up and starting to fight all the time, um, I could, I could, uh, I don't know how to put this really, but I could um, close the din by picking up a book and just disappearing into it. Right. So yeah. I, I guess books in a way to me have always been um, almost a sort of psychedelic drug. <laughs> well, and sort
2: of a great escape, huh?
3: A great escape, I mean, you know, You you know, when you're in the music business, man, you spend, like, hours doing nothing. Yeah. Just hours doing nothing every day. And uh, I just, I found if I was reading, it just made the time go fast, you know.
2: And and did you start, when did you first start writing about music? And uh, I'm interested, because Melody Maker is a famous old... Newspaper, and uh, we never got to see much of it in the United States. But uh, how did that happen for you?
3: Well, I um, I I got expelled from school, and I, I you know I went home. My mom said you have to get a job, and I, I got a couple of really crummy jobs, and they were terrible. They both lasted like a day, and I, I was um, sort of a naughty kid. I was selling pills and stuff, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my mum said, "Look, you know, you've really got to do something with your life." And I, I got a job at a local newspaper and oh god it was so boring i was writing uh, obituaries and marriages <laughs> <laughs> and you know they have to they're a format i mean it's not like you really write them nowadays you'd have a computer doing it you know right
2: you just plug in the names right you just
3: plug in the name and sort of which story do you use you know and you've got six a b c d you know and uh i saw an ad for melody maker i was um almost 18. I saw an ad for Melody Maker, and it said something like, um, you know, do you know who Led Zeppelin and the Moody Blues are? And looking back on it, I wrote this unbelievably rude letter to the editor. It was cheeky as could be, um, really cheeky, rude letter. And he invited me for an interview.
5: Oh, and perfect. I guess
3: we got along. I mean, we, you know, we talked for a long time. And he was really looking for people that just loved, that could write and love music. Okay. And um, he asked me to write a review for um, Rod McEwen <laughs> Oh, had, man. Who had Jonathan Living Seagull out and was huge. I mean, he was huge. Okay. And, of course, I, I didn't like the music. It was like, Jesus, you know, come on, this is an it's reading, you know. Right. So um, I wrote this review of him. God, I was a horrible little child, you know, mean-spirited little child, really. And uh, they ran the review and got thousands of letters. I mean, people hated me. They really, really hated me.
2: Well, that got your attention, didn't
3: it? <laughs> it got me the attention, and it got me the job. The funny thing is, you know, I, I'd been writing um, I was there about four days, and then someone noticed that I was eighteen. And you uh-huh. had to be twenty one at the time to be a writer on Fleet Street. And um I was called into the office and Ray said, Look, this has just come to our attention, so what we'd like you to do is be a messenger boy for three years and I said, No way, man, you hired me, I have a letter, you know. I was a pretty good negotiator. And uh they uh, got a, a something from the union that I was allowed to write, so I was kind of lucky, you know. Oh,
4: I, was, I was lucky.
3: These days, of course, that could never happen, you know. I mean, you just look right. on the internet, bingo, everyone's there, you know. Right. So um, it was a great job. Man. My first day uh, on the job, I interviewed Status Quo. And to be honest with you, I really didn't know what I was doing. I I really didn't. But they they had done quite a few interviews. They were fabulous. They were so helpful. They just knew what they were doing, you know. Um, And they were very, very, very nice guys. And the next day, I interviewed Peter Townsend. Oh, man. um, Which was tremendous. Now, I I sort of, I, I can't say I knew Peter. But I had met Peter on a a number of times um, uh, in coffee bars and stuff. I'd even run errands for him when I was little and helped him steal a guitar one time. So, again, he was very helpful, but I knew a lot more about him. Right. uh, But what I hadn't realized, um, you, you know, you read an article, and it's all pretty formula stuff, really. Um, and it seems like, well, it's going to be easy to write, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, believe me, you know, believe you me. When you suddenly got fifteen, twenty thousand words a week to write. That's a man. Lot, you it? learn your craft, like. How long did, how long did you do that? <laughs> I mean, you learn so fast, you know. <laughs> Lucky enough, we had great editors too, because those first pieces I wrote were. Oh, they were embarrassingly bad.
2: <laughs> well, we learned, but how how long did you do, was your job at Melody Maker, and, and was that the connection that that got you to Chris Isaac, or did you have to come over to the United States to meet uh, Chris?
3: Well, what happened was, I, I left Melody Maker, I'd always wanted to come to America, um, it had always been my dream, I mean, since I was tiny, you know, Coca-Cola, chewing gum, big hamburgers, um, Muddy waters, <laughs> um, I had a very strange view of America in my head, you know, and uh, of course, I came here quite quite a number of times and i I just every time I went back to England, um, it became more more the magnet to America became bigger you know i 'd be here, and you can order a pizza and tiniest little town in America, you can order a pizza at two o'clock in the morning, you know. Um, In England, everything closed at 11 still, except for the, you know, the kind of nightclubs uh, where rock and roll people went. So I moved here. I lived here for a couple of years. I was doing sort of freelance work, a little PR. uh, And then I went back to England. I got offered a really tremendous job in England. And I actually I was there about a week and I realised, oh God, I'm here again <laughs> Um and I got very lucky. I I
4: uh
3: I heard um uh, Kung Fu Fighting, the Carl Douglas song in a nine meeting at the record company. Yeah. And I said, Jesus man, this is a huge hit and no one agreed with me. That the, the other people in the in the ANR meeting thought it was just sort of an average, um, just an average kind of song. And I was able to um, get a deal on that. Um, and I, I I really worked hard on that record, made it a hit, and wow. that kind of refinanced me coming back to America. And I, I was down in LA for a couple of years kind of hanging around the punk scene there interesting really interesting scene oh i know
2: that.
3: it it reminded me very much of when uh, i was a teenager you know not know that i was much older than a teenager then but it, it seemed like it was a great sort of uh step backwards you know to, to it just seemed so alive and i uh, you know i came up to uh, la um sorry i came up to san francisco and met chris and took over his career.
2: Wow. Well, you know, you're. it's interesting because you obviously had an ear uh, f- for something special, you know, and when, did you hear his song uh, Wicked Game at some point and did that turn something in your head like Kung Fu Fighting or were you just interested in Chris as an artist? Or
3: Well, I heard a tape of him at a party and he oh. was singing um, a... Um, a country song. Ah. One, of, one of those sort of country songs that, you know, the little boy's getting dressed and he's combing wow. his hair, and you, you realize, oh, my God, he's going to his mom's funeral. <laughs> wow. And, and they're lovely songs, but if they're not done right, man, they're corny yeah. and terrible, you know. I mean, the whole thing is in the delivery and the heartfeltness of them. Otherwise, wow. they don't work. And I was, like, so impressed and I kept playing this tape, and it was actually at a punk rock party. I was driving people crazy, and wow. I couldn't find out who the guy was. It was so disappointing. It was just stayed on my mind for days. Wow. And I, I, I bumped into a guitar player here who said, all I could find out was the guy's name was Chris, and he came from Stockton. And I bumped into a guitar player I knew who told me, he was working with a guy named Chris Isaac who
2: came from Stockton. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, this is, again, John McAndrew. I'm co-hosting for one hour at a time with Mary Woods, and we will be right back with Brixton Key.
5: common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders that's westbridge.org family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders
1: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
2: Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. My name is John McAndrew. I'm your guest host today, and we have a very good show with author Brixton Key, and I want to give his uh, website and some other information. Of course, his book is called Charlie Six. It's available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And his website is wwwwhereischarlie Six? And that's just the word where, and the word is, charlie6.com. And uh, Brixton, we were talking about Your Good Ear and the song Kung Fu Fighting, which no one thought was worth anything, and they were all proven wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And then you find this country singer from Stockton, California, named Chris Isaac. And uh, how did you take him from that point to... uh, Obviously, some really good success in just a couple of years. It was really quick, wasn't it?
3: It was really quick. It. it um, he was, you know, absolutely a fantastic learner. Um, I got very... I got lucky. I've kind of always been lucky somehow. I, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I've read where luck comes from working hard, so maybe that's yeah. why I'm lucky because I work hard, you know. <laughs> but I... I um, we played a show. Well, I, I I knew some of the best guys in town, uh, best players, Jimmy Willseed, guitar player. Um, uh, we had a good bass player. He wasn't quite good enough to record, and a really good drummer, John Silvers. And we played this show. We played all the time. Every band around, every band had this idea that, you know, you can only play once a month, be exclusive and stuff. And I thought, look, you know, what's the use of playing once a month to 300 people? It doesn't mean anything.
4: Mm-hmm. It's it's
3: totally useless. And it costs a lot to rehearse. So take any show you can get, and you learn a lot more faster on stage than you're going to in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot faster. And so we played like crazy. I mean, it was nutty. The guy never stopped working. Um, and we played a show at an art, art college here, which was an absolutely nutty show. It was so hot. Nothing stayed in tune. Nothing. It was the oh. worst sounding gig you've ever heard. That's a nightmare, so, isn't it? Oh, it was a nightmare. But people were dancing and going nuts. And Eric Jacobson came... Um, Uh, He had heard about this. He was a record producer. He produced The Loving Spoonful. And Eric and I and Chris, we we just all got along so well. And Eric uh, really helped. He got the record deal with Warner Brothers. Um, And then we had a little bit of money. Once you have a little bit of money, things get a bit easier.
2: (laughs) Isn't that Um, the truth?
3: They really do. I mean, we were able to... Uh, get a small, oh, terrible little basement to, to kind of hang out and rehearse all the time. Um, and so it could become like a real job rather than people tr- hustling, trying to make a buck and play. It's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Chris started writing. He hadn't really written songs. I mean, he, he just had this great sense of songwriting. Yeah. I would sit with him and, uh, uh, all night long, we'd we'd be together. Just we were like sort of married. Or I mean, I saw more of him and my girlfriend. <laughs> uh
4: huh.
3: And we would sit at night together, and I would play uh, um, brushes on a box because I can hold time. I can't play drums, but I can hold time with a pair of brushes. It's uh-huh. not that difficult. And he would just sit and show me ideas, and I would go try this, try that, and you know, the songs started coming. And the first album came out. It did very well. It didn't sell as much as we hoped, but it did very well. The second album was a lot, lot better. And then "Wicked Game" came along, and you just knew that was a hit. Mm-hmm. It just, it just had that. Uh,
2: oh, I don't know what it is. You, you hear a certain record, and you just go, "Ooh!" Right. <laughs> and you, you were able to find, find him. Uh, this producer and you had this special relationship and as a manager he trusted you because you, you sat and played drums with him you know on the brushes and that um, so you had this relationship and then that good producer and and then you found um, Herb Ritz is that right who you did the video with for MTV because that was a big game changer wasn't it that was a big game changer yeah mm. now about that time I had started to kind
3: of I wasn't feeling well. I just wasn't feeling well. Um, and I bowed out. Um, it all just got too much for me. I bowed out. And I took about a, a year off. Um, and it was the weirdest thing, man. I, I bent down to pick up a weed um, that was growing in, uh, outside of the entrance to my house. And I suffered this huge um well i thought i'd been shot <laughs> oh, uh, i had a, a two 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 vessels in my brain burst at the same time oh, it, it was um oh, it was just I, I i could never explain the pain to anyone if if you've ever suffered from migraine um that a migraine would be like a minor headache,
2: right? And these were actual aneurysms, right? Yeah, my my brain
3: was bleeding. Um, and I said to my girlfriend, uh, oh, "I don't know what's happened to me." You know, I was sitting. Well, I couldn't sit down. I had to sort of fall onto the couch because my back hurt so much. Because you know, your spine gets full of blood too. I mean, it just felt like everything in my body had gone wrong. Um, just felt like every single thing had gone wrong. And I, um, my girlfriend at the time was a chiropractor. And she, she uh, felt my back and she was like, whoa, every single thing has gone wrong. She realized that we were in a very serious situation. Right and she also knew that my sister had died of a brain aneurysm, my lovely sister Susan, so um, uh, the two just twigged, you know, and um, she ran me, it was kind of lucky, it was one, of, again, this lucky star, man. it was on a Sunday morning, eight in the morning, when there's no traffic, and really, that. if you hurt yourself, that's about the best time to go to the emergency room, you know, because there's no one there, and uh, I, I, I was so lucky. I, I you in...
2: survived this very scary thing. Um, how how did you do that? And well,
3: I um, I got to the hospital, and of course they did a spinal tap, and there was blood there, and it was pretty obvious what had happened. And um, I was immediately I had like a thousand things jammed into me, you know, um, and uh, I saw. The surgeon came to see me um, early evening, um, and I didn't like him. He's now a very good friend of mine, but at the time I didn't like him. He just seemed so arrogant. And I I was really kind of... What I've discovered is you just get really bizarre when you have this sort of thing happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had um, some friends who were very, very high society people. And the man, the, the gentleman, Dr. Chang, happened to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> and I said to my girlfriend, phone Dr. Chen and see who this guy is. I'm scared stiff, you know. <laughs> and she phoned Dr. Chen and Chen said, oh, Dr. Peter Weber? He's brilliant. I trained him.
4: <laughs> oh, a little sort of a
3: coincidence, I suppose. <laughs> what a coincidence. And he really was brilliant. Um, uh, he, he told uh, my family that I had about a 5% chance of living mm-hmm. long enough to, get, to, be sta- to be stabilized enough for surgery and about a 5% chance of surviving the surgery which, uh, of course, I didn't know at the time. (laughs)
4: Um,
2: But he he, he was brilliant. He pulled me through. Um, Did you at any point think, well, this is it for Brixton Key? You know, I, <laughs> thought, <done>
3: well. <laughs> I, thought, I thought to myself, if I feel something, now I don't know how this could have ever have been, but I felt to myself, if I feel something's going wrong with this surgery, um, and I'm going to be in a wheelchair and, you know, just not able to look after myself, I'm bowing out, you know.
2: Right. How old how old were you when uh, at, at this time in your life? Uh, 1998. Um, 1998. I was in my forties. You in your forties. Yeah. And we talked I'm... you know, we talk a little bit we talk a lot on this program about drug and alcohol abuse and uh and how that affects family and was that uh can you tell us a little bit about how that played a role uh in your career as a manager, uh, before and after this kind of tragic well... thing? It
3: really changed everything. When I came out of the hospital, I was horribly moody um, because, you know, my frontal lobes had been, I mean, moved around to to be mended. Um, So I was very moody, very angry, and in this just, I just had like a, um, um, I would say like a a sort of headache that if you got this headache right now, you would go to the emergency room.
4: Mm -hmm. I I
3: had a headache like that for about seven months. It was just awful. It was so awful. And I was taking um, so many pills. I mean, it was nutty, man. I was, you know, taking hundreds of pills, uh, Vicodons and stuff to, you know, help the pain. And then, of course, washing those down with a lot of booze and, you know, Valiums and... I mean, I was a total mess, completely and utterly a mess, and I broke up and my girlfriend moved into my own place, um, and then, you know, kind of got into heroin. It was it was a bad situation, um, and I woke up, uh, I woke up in a bed in the hospital, I'd overdosed, just realised. Wow! I, I need help here. I really, really need some help. I, I need to be somewhere where I'm safe, and I need to be. I need to be somewhere where I can just talk to people about what I'm going through because you, you can't really. You know, you don't you break up with your girlfriend everyone's broken up with their girlfriend you can talk to your friends you know but when you've had something like a brain aneurysm that how many people
2: have you met who've had you know brain surgery <laughs> right it's a really small <laughs> and, small, and it, small group well yes, i tell you what Rick, more, we're going to follow up with this um again we're this is uh, one hour at a time with mary woods i'm john McAndrew. i'm very lucky to be talking with uh Really, an incredible author. His name is Brixton Key, and we're going to talk about his book when we come back, his survival, and uh, his family. So, we'll be back in a minute.
5: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's Westbridge.org, family centered recovery for co occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness.
2: Thank you. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time with Mary Woods. I am your guest host today. My name is John McAndrew, and I've been speaking this hour with Brixton Key, who is an author, uh, a music manager. He's really a whole lot of things, and we've been talking about a lot of stuff, and uh, we want to get around to his book, which is an uh, an autobiography, I think, of sort. It's called... uh, It's called Charlie Six, and uh, I got the book in the mail to read, and I had no idea who you were, Brixton, you know, and I got some information on you. And I started to read the book, and I have to tell you, there's a part of it that uh, just totally knocked my socks off. And, And I come from an Irish Catholic family, but a lot of the same ingredients that were in yours and you have a paragraph here about your father. And when I got done reading that, I went, "My God, this guy's uh, really a good writer." And they're going to make movies about his books. And if you don't mind me reading in a midwestern accent, <laughs> this paragraph. And this is about your father. And uh, in the book, your father's name is Raj or Rog. Is that correct? Uh, Raj. Raj. And your mother is yeah. Rosie. But here's this paragraph. Um, dressed in hand-tailored suits and the softest of leather shoes, he drove a black Hudson Custom 8 American motor and lived large in a sunny flat on the northwest corner of Kensington's Cadogan Square. Raj never gave a blind toss. He manipulated the consequences that most people fret about on sleepless nights. He learned the law, he learned the law overlooked indiscretions when cash changed hands. He learned fast. The easy money he made fencing stolen goods with Morris, his devastating knuckle-buster left hook, and the wartime black market molded him into a hard man. He was suave. He was dodgy and dangerous. He couldn't count two pence without feeling two pence in his hand. He didn't like aggravation. He was a king unto himself. I read that, and I went, holy moly um it is so powerful and uh your book is powerful and it is colorful beyond belief and and now that you described to me london in the 50s and this technicolor world that came after i think you've really really captured it and i want to commend you on it And i want people obviously to go pick this up because it's uh it's inspiring and compelling on a whole, whole lot of levels. So, um, you know, thank you for writing this, and uh, thank you for describing your father in such detail. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure. Well, isn't it? you know, Charlie's father, and I'm kind of slipping there. Charlie's father. It's Is that your dad, sort of too, a... Brixton?
3: To me, it's like a a fictional memoir, you know, (laughs) in the sort of Moe Flanders type tradition of uh, creating a character that sounds so real that you feel like, yeah, you know this person, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot of fun. Actually, my dad was like that. My dad was a a pretty bad guy. He he split when I was seven um, with just about... Everyone you could possibly have after you, other gangs, uh, the police, I mean, just, oh, just, it was brutal. He <laughs> mm-hmm. was a good example to me, why not to lead that life, you know?
2: Right. And Although I do believe I got my language
3: from him. The he log, was,
2: uh, Rosie, God, what a character. Oh, she's wonderful, isn't she? Is there any of your, you call her mom, is there any of your mom in that?
3: There's a lot of my mom, although really
2: it's more
3: based on um, a very good friend of mine. When, a, when I hear Rosie's voice, it's a pal of mine, but yes, it's very much based on my mom. She was uh, she was a very large character. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, she was just funny as heck. She was a very, very, very funny woman, a lot of fun. God, mm-hmm. she loved music too. I remember an auntie saying how oh, the Rolling Stones are a load of rubbish. And my mum uh-huh. sat down at the piano and uh, played Route 66 oh. in in the sort of original... Um, oh, dear, now I'm forgetting who sang it originally. Um, anyway, oh, let um, it come to me. Nat King she, Cole, didn't he? Nat King Cole. Yeah, she the guy that wrote it. So I've
2: forgotten his name, but... Uh...
3: He yeah, got us in that
2: King Cole, and he did it first. Yeah. She was playing it in that King Cole style, and then suddenly moved
3: into Berry and it just left my auntie had no argument. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> she was great. She loved pop music, uh-huh. you know, and her, her, her mother did. Um, my granny was funny, you know. She was going deaf. She was, like, in her 80s when I was a teenager, and you'd walk into her house, and her radio was so loud. I mean, it was at 10-plus, you know. Mm
4: -hmm. And she
3: would be saying, Oh, I love this song, sweetheart. And it was like the Rolling Stones, which was bizarre, Uh you know. To see your 80-year-old granny dancing around to a Rolling Stones song was really bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I I would have to turn her radio down to talk to her. That was probably the only time I ever turned anything down in my life when I was at Nanny's, you know.
2: Wow. So you grew up with this colorful life. I I kind of see you, uh, when you're hanging around with Chris Isaacs and the Rolling Stones and all these people, that it's uh, really not a whole lot more exciting than, <laughs> than your childhood. Well, it and, was exciting. You know, we yeah. moved so much. My
3: mom used to, my mom would, if it was the rent or a beautiful dress, the beautiful dress won.
2: <laughs> oh, wonderful.
3: So I, you, I was pretty good at packing up a house and sticking it into a taxi at, at two in the morning, you know.
2: Uh-huh. You know when so, you when you survived Brixton, the aneurysms and uh, heroin addiction, and you came out there, it's it's mentioned in your bio that your stepson suggested that you write. Is that true? And yes, do you think your writing was. Um, a big part of your recovery and and coming back and, uh, you know, what can you tell us about that?
3: Well, I think writing is one thing I, I would do, I mean, and I learned this in recovery, is start a diary. Just write about yourself. And also a very good thing is to start a list of what you don't like and what <laughs> bugs you and what you do like. And you know what happens? You start it off. And I think everyone, when they're in recovery, is a little kind of angry, you know? Yeah. And you start this list, I don't like peas, not overcooked peas, you know? <laughs> and that they, you start to realize that the things you don't like are really silly. <laughs> <laughs> and that there is so much more to like in life than there is to be you know cheesed off about right. the the list suddenly stops it, you just stop writing what you don't like because it all becomes absolutely pointless
2: uh-huh. it
3: becomes that, that there's a realization that even when you know even when you really are in one of those horrible horrible situations you start to realize it doesn't matter tomorrow's going to be great who cares uh-huh. There's always a solution, a sensible solution, you know,
2: um, rather than getting, getting angry and loaded, you know. Yeah. The thing Doesn't... about writing and recovery, like you just said, um, it's suggested at a lot of different levels and places about writing, isn't it? And and we don't, I don't know how to put this, um, we're not all going to be an author and write a book like you but there's an important thing that happens when we put stuff to paper, like about the peas, isn't there? What what is that? What is that thing that happens? I think you discover yourself. Uh huh.
3: Because really, you know, when you <clears throat> we, we I think we all live in a somewhat of a disguise, you know. I mean, I I probably sound, you know, reasonably confident and everything, but I'll tell you, the half an hour before this interview, I had butterflies and warps. I had to walk around the block, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, uh, before I read, I- I'm like, literally like a shaking lunatic, <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can barely smoke my cigarette outside wherever I'm reading, it's like, whoa, I'm trying to find my mouth, you know, mm-hmm. Um and I, I think we're all a little like that. We have a front and a private self. And once you know your private self, you're just better off. Uh-huh. And the only way I think you can get to know that is really if you just say, "Look, no, ho- no holds barred," and start writing. Right. Um, it it just helps. It it just it just helps. Well, and breaking. there's something between actually writing with a pen and the brain that connect. I, I don't know how good it would be doing that on a computer, although, of course, younger people just write on computers. They don't really write with pens. But I think for, you know, probably people who grew up writing with a pen, um, there's something just comes out. You just yeah. get
2: to know your inner self. And well, when you really you've have... certainly done that. Um... For yourself and for us, uh, you know, thank you for this book and thank you for your time. And I want to remind our listeners that uh, your website is www.whereischarlie6.com, and that's the name of his new book. It's a novel, Charlie Six, by Brixton Key, also available on Amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. And once again, my name is John McAndrew, and uh, thank you, Brixton, very much. And on behalf of One Hour at a Time in Mary Woods, we will uh, hopefully talk to you all again. Have a good day. You too. Thank you. Thank you.